You're listening to the Jesus for Everyone podcast. To support this podcast, go to RenewedHeartMinistries.com and click Donate. It's in these, the marginalized, whom Jesus tells to have hope, that God is not like their oppressors have made them think, that the end of their misfortunes is at hand, that the kingdom of God is coming, and it is for them. This is Herb Montgomery with Renewed Heart Ministries, and I want to welcome you to episode 234 of the Jesus for Everyone podcast. It's a podcast where we talk about the intersection of faith and social justice and what a first century Jewish Galilean prophet of the poor might offer us today in our work of uh, survival, resistance, liberation, reparation, and transformation on on our way towards uh, thriving. Our title this week is Faith Like a Mustard Seed. It's from the Q. Scholarship, uh, Sayings Gospel Q, 17.6. If you have faith like a mustard seed, you might say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Our companion text, or Matthew 17.20, he replied, because you have so little faith, truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, uh, and nothing will be impossible for you. Luke 17.6, he replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Gospel of Thomas 48, Jesus says, if two make peace with one another in one and the same house, then they will say to this mountain, move away, and it will move away. And lastly, Mark eleven twenty three. truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself in the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. So the, this, let's talk about this mountain first. And I want I want to talk about the mountain of the temple state that existed in Jesus' day. And we have a lot to unpack in this week's on in this week's saying. So um, let's just jump right in. Um, this mountain or this this mulberry tree in the in in the book Binding the Strong Man, a political reading of Mark's story of Jesus by Ched Myers, he places this whole section under the heading Faith as Political Imagination. And William Telford also saw an economic or a political backdrop drop on on uh, on which we can find this week's saying, which we read this week's saying against. And he writes, in Jewish circles, the correlative mountain and tree uprooting images were found in legal, legendary, thaumaturgic, and eschatological contexts and employed in connection with the rabbi, the king, or the hero, the thaumaturge, or the messianic follower. In a legal context, the term uprooter of mountains was found to have a technical meaning. It applied to the king and to Herod in particular. It could be employed as a double entrada, boistering a legal argument for the exceptional nature of Herod's pulling down of the temple. The function of Mark's redaction is therefore to announce, we believe, that the moving of mountains expected in the last days was now taking place. Indeed, about to be removed was the mountain par excellence, the temple mount. The temple known to the Jewish people as the mountain of the house or this mountain was not to be elevated as expected, but cast down. And this leads us to the the, the conclusion this week that Jesus's narrative was different than the narratives that were being given in his day. The elites of his day 
they had their narrative, the, the future zealots in the Jewish-Roman War, which would take place about three decades after Jesus, they had their own narratives around the temple. But both of these groups, they saw that the, the future zealots and the elites of Jesus' day, they saw the temple as enduring. The elites believed that as long as the empire remained strong, and as long as the temple aristocracy cooperated with Rome's demands, then the temple state centered in Jerusalem, it could endure. But but the zealots, on the other hand, they, they sought to reform the temple state, and they, along with the, the Jewish poor, they revolted against the economic exploitation of the, the temple state, and they wrested control of the temple state from the aristocrats. And, and, and then they launched this three-and-a-half-year war to liberate Jerusalem from Roman occupation and Roman exploitation, and, and the poor... Uh, uh, from there, they're joined in on this to, to, to liberate themselves from the exploitation of, of those controlling Jewish families of their time. But, but both of these narratives involved a temple state enduring in some form. And, and Jesus taught that the temple state, uh, rather than being reformed or rather than enduring through cooperation with Rome, that the temple state itself could actually be overturned. And I, I can't state this strongly enough this week. Jesus was a Jew. He was not a Christian. He, he didn't envision a Christian religion replacing Judaism. Instead, he envisioned a Jewish society without a temple state. And, and why? It's because in his day, the temple state was at the heart of the exploitation of the poor that he had dedicated his life to working in solidarity with. And that the Jesus of the Gospels envisioned a world where the presence of Yahweh could be expressed through a community which was practicing resource sharing and redistribution as opposed to uh, the presence of Yahweh being expressed at the, the heart of a, of a temple uh, that, that, that stood for systemic exploitation of the poor. And think of the following passages. In Matthew 9, 13, Jesus said, But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Or uh, uh, Mark 12, 42, and you can cross-reference this. The same thing is in Luke 21, 2. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins with only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, this poor widow widow has put more into the treasury than all the elders. They gave, they all gave out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in everything, all that she had to live on. And then immediately following this account of, of the economic abuse of this poor woman, we read uh, in, in, in Mark 13, one through two, immediately following as Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones, what a magnificent building. And do you see these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another, but everyone will be thrown down. It was a vision of a, of, for, for them, of a radically different world, a world without a temple, not a temple reformed, not a temple reclaimed, but a temple gone. And the, exploit, the, the exploitation or the, the exploiting temple state 
that's the mountain that that Jesus envisions being cast into the sea in the synoptics. Let's talk about this language or this imagery of being cast into the sea. In Mark's gospel, we first encounter the imagery of being thrown into the sea in the story of the exorcism at the at Ger- at the Gerasenes. And here, there's a demoniac, and then this demoniac, remember, is a symbol of the Jewish people being occupied or being possessed by the Roman Empire. The demon's name is Legion, like a like the unit of, of Roman soldiers. And when the demons plead not to be driven out of the land, think of Rome's occupation, Jesus permits them to inhabit a, a nearby herd of pigs who, who hurl themselves and, 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 and the empire that they symbolize into the sea. This is Mark 5, 11 through 13. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, hurled themselves down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned. And, and, and as we listen to this story today, as, as, as bizarre as it sounds to us today, Jesus is using the same imagery for his listeners, calling them to imagine not just a world with no more Roman occupation, but a world where even the exploitative uh, temple state, Mark and Matthew's mountain and Luke's mulberry tree, that the temple state itself too could be thrown into the sea. And the, the message was that that the world that we're living in, that it can be remade without exploitation. And, and this is the, the part of the message that received the greatest pushback for Jesus. It threatened not only the aristocratic temple elites who, who finally had Jesus executed, but, but it also threatened those who saw the temple as the manifestation of Yahweh's presence among them as a chosen people. And, and throughout history, Religious worship of a, of, of a god has often been tied to the oppression of, of vulnerable, pe- vulnerable people. And the liberation of the oppressed, it's often, on the other side, involved throwing out God too. And, and it's no wonder. It makes perfect sense. What, what Jesus was doing, Jesus was calling the people to imagine uh, not just a different world, but also that a different God too was possible. That they could imagine a world without a temple, without having to also embrace a world without their God. In other words, throwing out the temple didn't have to mean throwing out God too. You can imagine a different God as well as a different world. And that that terminology for Jesus, God's presence, instead of it, it being in an apartment in the temple, the most holy place, that that presence could now show up in the midst of their community. And it was a community that Jesus called the kingdom. And and and, and the terminology, again, that Jesus uses is problematic for, for, for those of us who today live in republics. But, but, but in its most simple uh, understanding, the most simple explanation, it's a community that endeavors to practice God's vision for human society according to Jesus. That's what he was referring to when he talked about the kingdom. And, 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 and this was a community, remember, that was rooted in a distributive justice where no one had too much while others didn't have enough. And this was a community where we, we also took responsibility for taking care of one another and our, our interconnectedness was, was understood and embraced and experienced. And, 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 and we've been robbed of so much 
in our capitalist society today by individualism and competition. Jesus envisioned a different world, a different community, but but he taught that a very different world was possible. So today, especially in the U.S., we don't have a religious state with a, a temple at its heart. Our society is a, a secular, pluralist society with a, a large sector of those citizens there in that pluralist society, secular society, claiming the Christian religion. We do have folks who, who feel also that to abandon the religion that they were raised in, that, that the, the, the religion of their oppressors, they feel like to abandon that religion, they must also abandon their faith in their God. And I believe there's much to learn from Jesus's distinction between faith in God and faith in a religious institution this week. And, and let me be just perfectly frank. Faith traditions and institutions, they've used their sacred text and their religions to oppress woman, women, to hold on to and to practice racism, to, to legitimize classism, and to condone and even prescribe their own forms of homophobia, biphobia, and transphobia. And just a couple weeks ago, a letter was sent out to all the pastors of a conference in the tradition that I was raised in from, from their conference president, and it warned, we do not receive into membership anyone who is, quote-unquote, is this is horrible language, but quote-unquote, practicing a homosexual relationship. I don't know how you practice a relationship, but regardless, uh, I'll put a link to the letter in this week's e-site so that you can read it for yourself. If You don't have to. It's just if you're curious. But but last weekend, I had a very different experience hosting as, as guests in my home, Crystal and I. I had in our home two of my most very dear friends, two of the most precious women in my life. And they're, they're women who are married and they're raising two beautiful daughters. And this couple still very much identifies as being part of this same denomination that, that, that I just mentioned that wrote that, that letter excluding them. They're raising their kids in that denomination. And, and, and one of, on one side, uh, one of the women, their family goes back generations in this faith tradition but the denomination's letter, it singles out people like my friends who are already marginalized. And, and, and the only word that comes to mind to, to, is shame. Shame on those of us who, are, are, who use our religion as a tool of, of oppression and dehumanization rather than liberation. And for those who find themselves on the receiving end of discrimination both in the world outside their religion and, and also within their religious tradition as well, actions like this denominations, it, it brings them an extra struggle of having to, to parse between their faith in a God whom they believe loves them and and a religious tradition where they first encountered God, but that's rejecting them. And, and I love how John Sabrino in his book, um, Jesus the Liberator, he, he, he sums up Jesus's message to those who find themselves in this place. He, he writes, it's in these, the marginalized, whom Jesus tells to have hope that God is not like their oppressors have made them think, that the end of their misfortunes is at hand, that the kingdom of God is coming, and it is for them. Jesus stood in solidarity with people 
that the religious, socioeconomic, and political powers of his day pushed to the margins. He called them to envision a, a different world without the, uh, the oppressing temple state, and he was, he was crucified by that temple state for doing so. But there's an interesting detail in the story. At the moment that Jesus died, each of the synoptic gospels, they include this note, and it's in Matthew 2751, Mark 1538, and Luke 2345. At, the, at that moment, the moment that Jesus dies, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This curtain separated uh, the innermost holy place in the temple from, from the rest of the structure. And the holy place that was believed to be the room where Yahweh's very presence, it was believed to have dwell there. But, 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 but in the story, when the curtain is torn in two, what's revealed? What, what do the people see beyond the veil? Well, the answer is, is implied. The, the room is empty. The God of the poor, the God of the oppressed, the God of those pushed to the edges of society, the God of the marginalized is not there. The, the room is empty, and the God who stands with society's vulnerable is actually at that moment present in the one instead, present in the one suspended between heaven and earth, between two rebels, the one who's being crucified by that system, the one who lived his life in solidarity with them and, and died as, as a result of that solidarity. That God is not at the heart of, of the system that's exploiting them or marginalizing them. God is at that moment with them, the crucified community. And the resurrection, it undoes, overturns, and overcomes all that was accomplished by Jesus's execution in the story. But before the resurrection, the first post-execution event is the rending of the temple's veil. I know it can be very painful to, to sever or to tear the association of your religious institution with your God, to separate those two. But I believe that that disillusionment must come. Deconstruction, it must be embraced. And, 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 and as painful as it is, we must lean into that deconstruction and come out on the other side to, to reconstruct a, a beautiful revolution. And, and this is where we come full circle back to this week's saying about, about faith. Angela Davis, she describes activism as a matter of faith. She states that, that we've all, we always have to act as if revolution were possible. We have to act as if it were possible to change the world. And if we do that work, the world is going to change. Even if it doesn't change in the way we need it to change right now, it will change. In, in the Jesus story, faith always makes the difference. In, in Mark 5.34, it says, daughter, your faith has healed you. In Mark 10.52, Jesus said, your faith has healed you. In Mark Matthew 9.29, according to your faith, let it be done to you. In Luke 17.19, rise and go, your faith has made you well. Mark 5.36, overhearing what they said, Jesus told them, don't be afraid, just believe. Mark 2.5, when Jesus saw their faith, and in Matthew 8, 13, Jesus said to the centurion, let it be done just as you believed it would. And Matthew 15, 28, then Jesus said to her, woman, woman, how great is your faith? Your request is granted. At Mark 6, 5 through 6, he could not do any miracles there except lay hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. And Mark 9, 23, Jesus said, everything is possible for the one who believes. The text of, of Mark's gospel suggests that 
that uh, Mark, the Gospel of Mark, the earliest gospel that we have, that it was written when people were struggling to continue to believe. But, but, but the question I want you to ask this week is believe what? They were struggling to believe what? It wasn't that they were struggling to believe in the existence of God. Um, uh, it wasn't that, that, that uh, a person could actually opt out uh, of the Jesus movement and still believe in the existence of God. The existence of God was not an issue in a theistic society like theirs that day. So, so, so what were they struggling to believe? In Mark 2, faith is not, it's not defined in, in terms of accepting doctrinal truths. It's not about believing the right doctrines of a religious organization or, or a tradition. It's and two. It's three hundred years later. It would be this, but during Mark's time, it's not even defined as confessing Jesus as the Christ or as divine. Jesus didn't preach himself in the stories. And and, and let me just repeat that for emphasis. Jesus did not preach himself in the Gospels. So, so what did Jesus preach? What did Jesus call his listeners to believe? In Mark one fourteen through fifteen, it says, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus called his listeners to believe the good news that the kingdom, the reign of God, or or God's vision for human society, that that had come and that it had come for them. And belief was tied to embracing the kingdom, to, as Angela Davis puts it, to to imagining another way of of being, another way of existing in the world. The the good news of God, it, it calls us to imagine a new world and to keep believing that that new world is possible. This kind of faith, it's what made all the difference in the stories of the Gospels, and it's the belief that very simply that things could actually be different, that we can choose a different world. It was a message of hope, and and even if it doesn't come to to full fruition in our lifetime, the kind of world that we want to create, it it, it can't receive its, its finishing touches by future generations if we haven't either laid the groundwork for them today or kept building today on the foundations of of those that have come before even us. And as Michelle Alexander said, it's about how we show up in this world in, in the limited time that we have. So if you have faith uh, like a mustard seed, if you believe that a different world is possible, then 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 you might say to this mulberry tree, all those uh, powers that that marginalize and that that exploit and that press people to the edges or the undersides of society, you can say to them, be uprooted, be planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Our group application this week, this week I want you to work towards putting that kind of faith into action. As a group, make a list of all the things that everyone enjoys doing in their free time, and then go around the room and have the group share the best qualities about about each person present and write them down. What kind of skills are are in the room? What what kind of things are the the people in the room typically asked to, to help out with? And then number two, remember everyone has something special to contribute, and, and with a list that you just made, uh, brainstorm ways that your heart group can volunteer in your community to help shape the world into what we believe our world can be. How can your group work as if revolution were possible? How can you work out of that faith? And then number three, 
pick an action that you've come up with and as a group do it. Now, coming up on the 28th of this month, I do want to say this too. It's it's the Global Day of Giving Tuesday. And, and this year, um, uh, we're, we're going to be partnering with um, uh, the 45,000, I believe, other organizations in 71 different countries, if I remember correctly, um, that are all participating in Giving Tuesday this year. It's the largest giving uh, day of the year. Uh, it it, it, it uh, encourages and sponsors generosity, and it shows that our that that collective giving is much more powerful than individual uh, giving. So this year, uh, make a special year-end contribution to Renewed Heart Ministries on November 28th, and it'll it'll participate in this Giving Tuesday uh, uh, movement. And 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 you're supporting our work and and what it's becoming probably the most important day of the year for for nonprofits. Remember, November 28th, you can go to renewedheartministries.com forward slash donate and 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 help us meet our our year-end goal and and help us participate uh, with this this event. Thank you in advance for partnering with us. And uh, if you do so online, social media, I believe the Gates Foundation, up to $2 million, is uh, matching every donation made. So if if you're on Facebook, go to, we'll do a a Facebook fundraiser on that day too. Um, If you'd prefer to donate that way, go to Facebook and and, and donate um, there on our uh, 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 Facebook page, and and then every dollar you give will be matched by by the foundation. But but wherever you wherever this finds you this week, keep living in love, survival, resistance, liberation, reparation, and and transformation as we we follow Jesus together toward that abundant life. I love each one of you dearly. I'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.